there was a thing called the way. And people called uh, following Christ the way because they understood that it was more than just about what you believed about Jesus. It was that these Christian teachings had to be lived out by a community of people. Um, There was this understanding that, that we had to live in the way of Christ, which is why the first, when Jesus gathered his first disciples, he didn't say, come and believe in me. He said, come and follow me. Be like me. So, you can go ahead and take that down. Remember, we've been talking um, uh, from 1 Thessalonians, we've been talking about how it was the first letter that Paul wrote to a church. He wrote several letters throughout the New Testament. This has happened to be the first one. It was written about 51 A.D., which was about 12 to 15 years before the first gospel was written about Christ's life. So when Paul would go around and introduce Christ to these new cities, all they really had um, was the oral testimony of him and the other missionaries that were there talking about the life of Christ, and then the example that they lived to show people this is what Christ was like, and this is the way of Jesus. In today's culture... I feel like a lot of um, church people kind of lean on this philosophy of um, pointing people to the word and saying, well, just do what the Bible says. Live like what the Bible says because most people have a Bible, right? They're in every pew that we have here. Most of you probably have one in your home, no matter how dusty it might be, right? And I think we stray away from telling people, hey, live like me. If you want to be like Christ, just live like me. Imitate me. And we've talked about that disconnect. And this week I came across some great thoughts along these lines in a book written by the Barna Research Group. You've probably heard of Barna before. They wrote a book called The Frog in the Kettle. And this is the opening quote of one of the chapters. I'm going to read a, a few different quotes here. It says, Although Americans generally possess traditional beliefs about God, Christ, and Satan, The momentum is against integrating spiritual belief with daily behavior. The momentum is against integrating daily, traditional beliefs with daily behavior. Later in the chapter, he goes on to say this. There's an interesting contradiction between what most of us say we believe and what we do or don't do in response to those beliefs. The vast majority of Americans have orthodox Christian beliefs. They acknowledge the virgin birth, the death and resurrection of Christ, the power of prayer, the reality of miracles by God, the importance of the church, the reality of Satan and hell and the life of the Holy Spirit in the believer. More than nine out of 10 adults own a Bible and a majority of them even believe it is God's written word, totally accurate in his teaching. About three out of five claim they have made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ. But the research data says our actions indicate that our beliefs are not held to be significant. Studies show we have become a nation of biblical illiterates, lacking knowledge of what is in the Bible, and showing limited commitment to applying its truth to our daily behavior. See, as Americans, we're very comfortable with saying that we believe something, but we don't necessarily have to live it out to say that it's it's a part of our belief system. Then he goes on to say this, If we can help the world to recognize that our faith is not a one-dimensional experience, but it's a multifaceted way of life, which permeates every thought, action, and experience, then Christianity would not only assume greater importance in the minds of people, but would challenge non-believers to explore this faith in a new way. 
So he's saying that if we, if we actually lived what we say we believe, then Christianity might be a little bit more attractive to people. They might be really willing to investigate it and see what it's all about. It might be worth something looking into. And the author finishes up by saying this. This means we will have to demonstrate the relevance of Christianity in every dimension of our lives. More and more emphasis must be placed on how we live those beliefs. Christians must communicate the importance of the faith by exhibiting a lifestyle based upon a Christian philosophy of life. It sounds pretty basic, doesn't it? I mean, when you really boil down all of that, it really boils down to live what you say you believe, right? I mean, that sounds simple. But I don't know about each one of you, (laughs) but that is a struggle for me every single day, right? I can open up my Bible in the morning, and I can look at a teaching like, do not gossip, you know, do not slander others, And I can look at that and I can think, man, that is true. That is right. I shouldn't do that. In my heart, I can say, I'm not going to do that. And then at lunch that day, I'm doing that, right? Or I'm sitting at a table with other people that are who should know better. And I'm not saying anything like, hey, maybe we shouldn't talk about those people anymore, right? And you can go on and on, whatever your pet thing might be. I mean, we read, do not judge others lest you be judged. And what do we do? We judge people constantly, right? There's this huge gap between what we say we believe and how we actually live, and it destroys our credibility. And Paul, today, as we look in 1 Thessalonians, he's going to address this issue of living in a way that that represents Christ well in an unbelieving world. And so I want you to open to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It's page 825. First Thessalonians 4, page 825. The heading for this chapter in my Bible says, Living to Please God. Okay, I want to start in verse 3, because I think it's kind of an important point he makes. <coughs> Excuse me. It says, It is God's will that you should be sanctified. That word sanctified means the process of being transformed into the image of Christ. Okay? So God's will for each one of us is not that we would believe stuff about him or to go to church. His will for us is that we would be like him. And that's a process of transformation, which means that we're not going to be perfect at it, which means that we are always going to have a gap between what we say we believe and how we live. But the hope is that over the course of our life that that gap would shrink, that there wouldn't be such a huge chasm as there is on occasion So if we are sanctified and becoming like Christ and imitating him, our lives will look like this. Skip down to verse 9. He says, Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business. And work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. So Paul starts off in verse 9 with this very interesting idea. He says, I don't need to tell you to love one another, because God has already taught you how to do that. So what does he mean by that? Let's look at Romans 5.5. 
if you can put that slide up, it says this, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So this is a fundamental Christian truth that when we begin a relationship with God, when we invite him to be a part of our life, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in us. So if God is love and his spirit is in us, then loving others ought to flow naturally. We should be hardwired to love other people. Okay, that's kind of Paul's point here. You've been taught by God through the presence of his spirit in your life to love other people. I don't have to talk about it. But really, it's kind of if we're open and responsive to the Holy Spirit, we will love well. So then what's the problem? What gets in in the way of us just doing that naturally? We have a God in us who is love. So why don't we love very well sometimes? What gets in the way of that? Yeah, Anna? Okay, our love can be conditional where God's love is unconditional. It's not based on our response or whether we're a good kid that day or we do the right thing or whatever, okay? Our love has conditions a lot. Yeah, what else? We're self-centered, okay? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, what do you mean by that? Okay, yeah, so we worry about the perceptions of others. If I love this person, what will people think? Um, Or uh, people can say, you know, if you are gracious and merciful towards someone that's kind of screwed you over a lot, they can say, hey, you're being taken advantage of. How can you continue to be merciful and gracious and forgiving towards this person who's a jerk to you, right? And so there's a perception in the world that we kind of, you know, it's an eye for an eye kind of a thing. You know, people mess with you, you can mess with them back kind kind of a deal, okay? What else gets in the way? Yeah, London. Okay. Okay. Yeah, we get jealous of people of the life they may have or, you know, things like that. Those are all great things that are stumbling blocks for us. Are we going to say something? No? Oh, Yeah. Definitely. Good. Guys, great job there. So we have this, this issue that this blocks lots of things that come in the way of us loving like we should. So, in fact, if you look, if you look at the passage again in verse, verse 9 and 10, Paul starts off by praising them, just like he did in chapter 1. If you remember a few weeks ago, he talked about the Thessalonians. He said, guys, you guys are great lovers of people. In fact, everybody around here in the whole area of Macedonia and northern Greece has heard about your love for each other. You guys are doing a great job, but he says this. He says, do it more and more. And the Greek translation of that phrase more and more means superabound. Superabound in love for one another. And it's this idea that he's trying to convey that we should never be satisfied with our perceived proficiency in any area of our life, okay? Each of us has some different gifts. Some of us are naturally more loving or more compassionate or better leaders or whatever it might be. But he's basically saying, don't rest on that. (laughs) You can improve. When our standard is a perfect Jesus, there's always room for improvement, right? 
So he's saying, even though that might be a gift of yours that you're doing a pretty good job of, do it more and more. There's room for improvement there, okay? Paul starts with this issue of love, but then he adds three more things in the next few verses. He says, to live a pleasing life to God, we are to love each other, lead a quiet life, mind our own business, and work with our hands. Okay, pretty simple stuff to understand in theory. Seems pretty basic. Let's look a little bit deeper at these, though. Verse 11, he says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. That word ambition means to to be zealous and to strive eagerly. In other words, try really hard to live a quiet life. Okay, and when he says quiet there, he means a calm life, a peaceful life, a tranquil life. And those two ideas don't really seem to go together, ambition and a quiet life, right? They seem kind of contradictory to one another. And if you think about our culture, the ambition of our culture is anything but living a quiet life, right? It is all about noise and busyness and distraction and and the thrill of the moment and making sure that everyone else always knows what we're doing or thinking at any given moment, right? You know, this is me, you know, looking at myself in the mirror. You know, this is what I'm thinking right now as I'm riding my bike on a beautiful day, you know, and we're constantly just putting out these messages, consulate, that's anything but quiet. It's all about noise, busyness, okay? And so if you think about um, 2,000 years ago and the absence of all the things that we have now, and Paul is saying, hey, live a quiet life. Can you imagine what he'd say to us today if he looked at how we lived? I mean, he'd just be going insane, I'm sure, okay? So we are set up to live in a way that is not very quiet, that is not very calm and peaceful and tranquil. People look at our lives and the busyness and the noise and the distraction, and they think, what, what does it mean to be a Christian? How are you living differently than the people in this world who seem to be frantic and constantly filled with stuff all the time? Is your life different? Are you, are you living your life in a way that's inviting and people understand that you have time for them? And he adds a descriptor of what living a quiet life would look like. He says, mind your own business. Did you know that came from the Bible? Next time you say, hey, mind your own business, be like, hey, I'm just quoting scripture, you know? <laughs> okay? Mind your own business as opposed to What? as opposed to minding everybody else's business, right? As opposed to trying to control everybody or fix everybody or worry about what everybody else is doing. Paul says, turn the mirror towards you. Work on your character, your integrity. Why is that such an important and critical habit for Christians? Yeah. Because if we're doing everybody else's inventory, who's doing ours? Okay. If we're doing everybody else's inventory, who's doing ours? That's great. What else? What else does it say to the world when we are really consumed with what everybody else is doing and not ourselves? Yeah, Jim. Okay, we could come across as being judgmental. Yeah, Kendra. It stops the process of sanctification. So if we're trying to be, you know, if God's desire is to transform us into the image of Christ, 
and we're not focused enough on ourselves and the things that need to change and asking God to change some things in us, confess some things that need to be changed. We're always worried about what everybody else is doing. And a lot of times, too, what we can do when we're focused on other people is that we can elevate ourselves above other people, right? And we can say, well, you know, at least I'm not fill in the blank like that person, right? And it fills us with pride. As, we, as long as we don't see ourselves as an equal need of grace and mercy um, from God, then that's what we do. And the easiest thing to do is to change others or to try to, right? Self-leadership is the hardest thing to do, to change a pattern or a habit in your own life. So he says, love others, live a quiet life, mind your own business. And then this last one, he says, work with your hands, And this seems like kind of an odd one to throw in there, Um, but if you understand the culture of kind of what was going on, it'll make a little bit more sense. (coughs) Excuse me. So first of all, he was speaking to these Greeks, and some of them were upper-class Greeks, and to an upper-class Greek, work was like way beneath them. That's why they had slaves, okay? So the slaves do the work. You know, I talk about philosophy, all right? Eat Greek yogurt. I don't know what those people did, all right? So the problem is, is that Paul is saying you need to be an imitator of Christ. And so the problem is is that you have this carpenter king that you're trying to follow. You have these disciples who were fishermen. And Paul himself as a missionary was a tent maker. He had a business. He worked with his hands. And so he says if you're going to be like us and like Christ, that you need to get to work. (laughs) You need to earn your keep. And the other issue people had, no matter what their economic level was, is that there was an over-focus at this time on Jesus' second coming. And you see it throughout Paul's letters. A lot of the early Christians thought Jesus was coming back soon. And so we're going to see this in chapter 5 here. So basically their thought was, well, why work hard, (laughs) right? If Jesus is coming back, let's just kick it, right? Let's have a good time. And Paul is saying, guys, your laziness is killing your reputation, the reputation of Christ, people are thinking that Christians are just lazy. And that is not helping us in our cause here. Okay, so there's a couple things, reasons why he says, work with your hands there. Now, some might look at those instructions and wonder how doing those things, loving people, leading a quiet life, minding your own business, and working with your hands, how are those things going to draw other people to Christ? Are those really, doesn't sound like evangelism as we would think about it, right? Where's the preach the gospel, you know, stuff? But I want you to look at verse 12 again. Look at the first part there. Paul says, do these things so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. You see, when we begin to close the gap between what we say we believe and and how we live, our faith and our feet, if you will, then it begins to open up doors with outsiders, people are, are more ready to listen to us when they can see that we mean what we believe. Okay? Now, over the past 20 or 30 years, there's been a huge cry from the Christian community to be relevant, right? We've got to make church relevant, we've got to make the gospel relevant, we've got to make Jesus relevant. And there's, there might be some truth to that. But nine times out of ten, we go about it the wrong way. We think being more relevant means playing cool music or lighting some candles or pastors wearing shorts or starting church services at 1030-ish. 
okay? And all of those things are fine things, <laughs> but nothing is more relevant than creating a community of people who are striving to live in the way of Jesus. There is nothing more relevant than that. Grace and mercy and forgiveness and love and truth and compassion are always going to be relevant. Always. Music styles are going to change. Worship services are going to change. Clothing styles are going to change. I'm already out of style, but, you know, I'm trying to keep up with 20 years ago. But the way of Jesus is always going to be compelling. And so if we focus on living like him, we will always be relevant. Closing the gap between our faith and our feet, living what we say we believe. I want you to turn in your Bibles back to Psalm chapter 15. It's page 378. Psalm 15. It's a short one. We're going to read the whole thing. It says, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? The one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from their heart, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor, who casts no slur on others, who despises a vile person but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps an oath even when it hurts. And does not change their mind, who lends money to the poor without interest, who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. Whoever does these things will never be shaken. This is a psalm of integrity. And I remember reading it again, I don't know, it was probably two or three years ago. It was just one of those days where it was like God just kind of like smacks you upside the face when you read something. And just like, whoa. <laughs> and he began to just kind of reveal to me the number of things in my life where there was a gap between what I said I believed and how I acted. And it was a humbling experience to see that and to really be honest about it. And that's why Paul says to the Thessalonians, he says, do it more and more. He says, make it your ambition to represent Christ well. Our daily life may win the respect of others if we do that. People may be willing to listen to what Christians might have to say. You might get an audience to share the greatest message that you could ever share with somebody, that there's a Savior that loves them, that died for them, that offers them hope, eternal life, a life of abundance and fullness and joy here on this earth. Until then, as long as that gap continues to exist, between what we say we believe and how we live our lives, our witness to the world will be hampered and ineffective. And guys, I don't know about you, but when you turn on TV or look in the newspapers today or look things up on your phone, there are a lot of really critical issues being discussed in our world today. There's a huge battleground going on out there about what truth is and where People stand on some things that are pretty important. And we have an opportunity to be a part of that discussion. But if our faith and our feet 
aren't very close to one another, we lose that opportunity to have access to that discussion. And sometimes it isn't fair. Sometimes people hold Christians to a higher standard and say, well, you believe this, but you live that way, so you're, you know, you're a hypocrite. Well, you know what? Everybody's a hypocrite. There is no perfect person in this world. So those that are the farthest people from being Christians are just as much hypocrites as everybody else, but we're held to a higher standard. You know what? That's okay. And we need to embrace that and say, man, we've got to be better, right? Admit that we can't be perfect, but, but man, we're striving to be like a perfect Savior, so we've got to grow in that. And as we do those things and as we model the way of Christ, which was winsome and inviting, and people who had questions were drawn to him and not pushed away by him, then we might be able to come to the table on some of these things and be a part of some of the discussions that are going on. And I think one of the things that stuck out to me from that quote that we read earlier was that we are becoming a nation of biblical illiteracy. We can't live the way of Jesus if we don't know Jesus, right? If you're going to study a character for a role in a movie, I mean, think of, you know, the, the, the guy that played Lincoln. What was his name? Daniel Day-Lewis, Daniel Day right? Actors immerse themselves in the character so that when they are acting, they feel like they are that person. They become that person. You know, it's interesting, though, as Christians, like, we're supposed to be like Jesus, but maybe the only time we really crack the Bible open is on Sunday morning once a week and read a few verses here and there, and we we'll say, yeah, I'm, I'm modeling my life on Jesus. Like, really? Do you know him? Well, how much do you know about him? Have you spent some time with him? You know, if you want to be like somebody, you got to be with them and live in the way that they lived. This morning, as we come to the table, I want to remind us of the things that Paul said about communion. He wrote this to the Corinthians to teach them about communion. He said, For I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. In other words, everybody ought to mind their own business before they come to the table. And so this morning, I guess what I really want to, uh, for you to think about as we move on from here, um, that seems like a huge challenge. You know, if you look at the, the entirety of the way I live compared to what I say I believe or I should believe, <laughs> that seems like a massive undertaking, so I would just ask this morning, or maybe just you can boil it down to just what is one thing? What is one area of your life where you know you don't represent and reflect Christ very well? And it hinders your ability to connect with people on the outside of the faith who, who you might be able to have a witness with. What is just one area that you can invite God into and say, God, help me in, in this area to be a better reflection of you? 
And for me, it's, it's loving other people well. A few weeks ago, we talked about the spectrum of invitation and challenge and how I tend to be way over here on the challenge part is I'm really trying to do a much better job of loving people so they can hear the challenge that I might have for them. And so that's kind of a journey I'm on of asking God, how can I love people well <clears throat> so that my challenge isn't just like a, an endless gong of demandedness all the time? So maybe God has something for you, one thing you can focus on. Let's just take some time and be quiet and come before him this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for for Paul and his understanding in the absence of, you know, Bibles in every house at his time that his life and the life of his partners who were on the mission with him spoke everything that people were going to know about Christ. And he didn't shy away from that responsibility. He, he accepted it and he said, hey, imitate me, follow me as I follow the example of Christ. Lord, give us that kind of courage, that kind of understanding that in a, in a nation that's largely biblically illiterate, that we are the representatives of Christ in this world. And the assumptions that people gain of who God is and who Jesus is are going to come from the life that we live. How well we do at loving other people. How well we do at living a quiet life and minding our own business and working hard each day. Those little things that don't seem like much. People are watching us. And God, I pray that you would help narrow the gap between our faith and our feet. What we say we believe and, and what we really do or don't do in our life. And God, speak to us maybe just about one area of our life today that we can invite you into this process of sanctification, of transforming us more into the image of Christ in that one area of our life. And then maybe when we've grown some, there may be a new area you might bring up. But God, we give you this time this morning. We need you. We thank you for your body and for your blood that makes transformation and sanctification and forgiveness and all those things possible. So hear our prayers right now.